You're listening to a podcast by Lance Lambert Ministries. For more information on this ministry, please visit lancelambert.org and follow us on Telegram to receive all of our updates. We're continuing this series of messages themed around glory in anticipation for a new book called The Glory of God, which will be released next month. The Glory of God is a book of four messages Lance gave at the Halford House, reflecting on Exodus 33:18. In this passage, Moses says to the Lord, Show me thy glory. Lance notes that Moses asks the Lord to show him his glory after the Lord had already manifested his power in many miraculous and glorious ways, such as parting the Red Sea, giving the law on Mount Sinai, giving bread from heaven, among other incredible examples. The scriptures even say that Moses spoke to God face to face as one speaks with his friend. But Moses' desire was to know God in a deeply intimate way. Therefore, he says, show me thy glory. Our desire for this book is that each saint who reads it will be encouraged to find the Lord himself and not to be satisfied merely with the edges of his ways. The Glory of God will be available on February 28th. In this episode, Lance will preach from the second chapter of Hebrews about the Lord bringing many sons to glory, how we appropriate the grace of God to be brought into the eternal glory of His Son, and how the glory of God is manifested when He is at home. Let's listen. You would turn to the second chapter of Hebrews, the second chapter of Hebrews, verse 9. This is speaking of the Lord Jesus. But we behold him, that is Jesus, who hath been made a little lower than the angels because of the suffering of death crowned with glory and honor, that by the grace of God he should taste of death for every man. For it became him for whom are all things and through whom are all things in bringing many sons unto glory to make the author of their salvation perfect through suffering. For both he that sanctifieth and they that are sanctified are all of one, for which cause he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will declare thy name unto my brethren. In the midst of the congregation will I sing thy praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I am the children whom God hath given me. Since then the children are sharers in flesh and blood, he also himself in like manner partook of the same, that through death he might bring to naught him that had the power of death, that is the devil, and might deliver all them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For verily not to angels doth he give help, but he giveth help to the seed of Abraham. Wherefore it behooved him in all things to be made like unto his brethren, that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. 
For in that he himself hath suffered being tempted, he is able to succor them that are tempted. Wherefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, even Jesus. And then verse 12, Take heed, brethren, lest haply there shall be in any one of you an evil heart of unbelief in falling away from the living God. But exhort one another day by day, so long as it is called today, lest any one of you be heartened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we are become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our confidence firm unto the end. There's just one little phrase that I want to underline this morning that's on my heart, and I trust the Lord that it will mean something to us, and it is this verse in um, uh, verse 10, for it became him for whom are all things and through whom are all things in bringing many sons unto glory. Bringing many sons unto glory. What a wonderful phrase. We really look right through this chapter and indeed on into the next. We find that the key to it is bringing many sons unto glory. The Lord Jesus Christ did not just die to save us. He did not just die in order that we might be justified. He did not even die that we might merely enjoy spiritual blessings here. He died in order to bring many sons unto glory. Now, that word glory is often misunderstood. We either think of it in terms of something sort of Victorian pomp and splendor, all the sort of military brass bands massed, and a sort of uh, the queen uh, pinning upon someone's tunic some order of merit. Um, we think so often of glory in those terms. Sometimes people think of glory as just some passing flash of ecstasy, some point of great emotion. This is not what the Bible calls glory. The glory that the Bible speaks of is essentially the manifested presence of the Lord. Not just the presence of the Lord, but the manifested presence of the Lord. And you find it again and again and again. When the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle, no one could enter in. It wasn't something invisible. It wasn't something intangible. It was the manifested presence of the Lord. When the glory of the Lord filled the temple, not a priest could enter in at its consecration. It was the manifested presence of the Lord. And it is a very interesting um, fact that the first time we read of the glory of the Lord in the Bible is when it filled the tabernacle. 
as if God is indicating to us that his glory has something to do with his redeemed people, that his manifested presence has something to do with the ones he has saved, to do with his dwelling place, to do with his habitation, to do with his home. Wherever God is at home, he manifests his presence. That is glory. It is a sense not just of ecstasy. That is the symptom. That is only a symptom. The glory of the Lord is that God is at home. And because God is at home, we had that wonderful sense that everything is right. Now, if you think back, and I'm very sorry for any believer here this morning who has never been touched by the glory of the Lord. I feel desperately sorry for you. Every believer has at some point or another, or should have been, touched by the glory of the Lord. Sometimes it only happens with some because they don't understand these things at their conversion. But they were transported. Absolutely transported, as if they were walking on air. Sometimes it happens at a point of revelation when God reveals something to a person and it says if suddenly they're transported, it's not necessarily emotion. It's just a marvellous sense of something that is right. Something that is absolutely right. Have you ever known it in a time of praise or worship when we get to a point where somehow we pass um, through the spiritual sound barrier? We're no longer conscious of people fidgeting or coughing or, or dropping their hymn books or all the other things. We're just conscious of the Lord. And we're, we're so conscious of a rightness about it all. We're caught up with the Lord. We seem to be lost with the Lord. That is glory. That's a touch of glory. That's only a touch of glory. Nothing like what the glory will be one day. But won't it be marvellous when that becomes our normal experience? And everything is right. Everything is right. There's no, there will not be a place in the whole universe, neither in the heavens nor on earth, where everything will not be right. It will be filled with the glory of the Lord. Every blade of grass, every tree, every hill, every valley ex expressing not a fallen world, not a fallen creation, not a disordered creation, but something which has now been uh, uh, brought back to its original destiny and meaning. Oh, how wonderful that will be. The prophets get carried away by, by this idea of glory. They speak of the knowledge of the glory of God covering the earth as the waters cover the sea. They speak about the, and all flesh shall see the glory of the Lord shall be revealed to all flesh. They shall see it together. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. That's the correct um, rendering. It is so wonderful when we begin to understand something about this glory. But again, let me get this right. The heart of the matter is not that God wants to manifest his presence in the creation. That again is the consequence. God wants to find a redeemed people in union with himself in whom and through whom he can manifest 
his glory. And that's why the first occasion we ever get the glory of the Lord mentioned in the word of God is when the Lord stepped into the tabernacle. And the tabernacle was only something very earthly, very human. It was a picture of the heavenly. It was a, a figure of the eternal. But when that old tabernacle was finally set up, after all the battle that there had been, the the God of glory stepped into it and filled that earthly structure with his manifested presence. In Jewish things, we call it, and it's come to Christian things, we call it the Shekinah, the Shekinah, as the Puritans called it, the glory of the Lord, the manifested presence. Now, listen to this. You and I have been called to his eternal glory. 1 Peter, chapter 5. 1 Peter, chapter 5, verse 10. And the God of all grace who called you unto his eternal glory. Now, for me, at any rate, it, it lifts this whole matter of salvation onto an altogether new and more glorious level into an altogether new dimension when I understand that God has called me to his manifested presence, to the eternal manifestation of his presence. Doesn't that, doesn't that transform the whole idea? Instead of thinking of masked bands blowing trumpets and harps all playing and sort of thousands of angels, I, may they forgive me, I have a tremendous admiration and <laughs> privilege um, for all the angels that are here today, forgive me. Um, but they understand as well as I that it is not... It's not just a matter of massed bands and glorious pomp and splendor and people having things pinned on their chests. No, no, no. It is this, that, that you and I have been joined into an eternal union. You and I, with the Lord, have been joined into an eternal union. The manifested presence of the Lord called the God of all grace has called you to the eternal manifested presence. Oh, I find that so wonderful. We don't even understand what God really had in mind for this old world, for this creation. We discussed on Thursday evening that word, whether it should be in Mark 16, verse 15, go ye into all the world and proclaim the gospel to all creation. That's how it's put, I think, somewhat awkwardly. To every creature in the authorized version, that's how it's put. It's such a hard word. Um, one was reminding me a little earlier that it says in Colossians 1 and verse 23 that this gospel has been preached in all creation of which, says Paul, I am a minister. What does it mean? What does it mean? Of course it must mean, first of all, all that have been created, all of us, mankind. But all this gospel goes out beyond even mankind to the whole creation. In the end, the extent of the gospel is that God will bring a new heaven and a new earth wherein dwells righteousness. 
And because righteousness will be the basis of that whole new universe, then the manifested presence of the Lord will be seen in and through his own, touching the farthest extents of that universe. How wonderful. Called unto his eternal glory. We so often have uh, uh, a poor appreciation of our salvation. We tend to think that God has just saved us and that we're going to go to heaven and wander around streets paved with gold. Well, I don't know whether I want to wander around streets paved with gold. Maybe there will, of course, be such a physical city, a center of administration. I have no doubt about that, really, because it seems to me quite obvious if we're going to have bodies, we're not just bodiless spirits. We're going to be like our Lord, who could eat broiled fish, that could be touched, um, tangible bodies, even though resurrection bodies, and it seems to me, therefore, that may well be, we should be, must be located uh, somewhere. There must be some kind of, uh, of, of, of place where we shall be. I don't know, but that to me is immaterial. The most glorious thing of all is that we have been joined, we've been called to the manifested presence of God. And you know, my point is this, we don't understand what God's original idea in this universe was. We only know that somehow the whole thing spiraled downwards through the fall and became subject to a cycle of corruption, in bondage to corruption, so that the things which we see are not really uh, uh, getting to the place God intended them to be. And the reason is that the heart of that whole creation is man. When man fell, the whole natural creation was poisoned by the fall and brought into a kind of disorder. Now, when, when God gets a redeemed people in union with himself and has trained them and educated them and qualified them, then that glory of God can be manifested in and through them and will go right out to the whole creation revolutionizing every single part of it. And then we don't know what the Lord's purpose is. All we know is that we shall be joined to him, one with him. There are some wonderful scriptures in this connection that only hint at this. In 2 Thessalonians and chapter 1 and verse 10, it says, When he shall come to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at, in all them that believed. Um, when he shall come to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at in all them that believed. What a wonderful word, marveled at, in all them that believe. You just think of that. There'll come a day when the whole world visible and invisible, will marvel at the glory of the Lord in you and in me. Just like we go sometimes to see some work of art that has been produced so painfully, we go to see it 
because it reveals we want to see what was it in the artist's mind? What was his genius? What was it that he was seeking to express? So it says, when these saints are glorified, um, they, the Lord will be marveled at in all them that believe. There will have been such a work done in us that the, that the whole of the creation will marvel at the Lord in us. Of course, we have it again in Revelation and 21, where we read of, um, uh, in verse 10, he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high and showed me that the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. And then it says later on in that same chapter, and the glory for the glory in verse 23 for the glory of god did lighten it and the lamp thereof is the lamb and the nation shall walk amidst the light thereof now i find that very very wonderful because it just simply means that this matter of glory is not an individualistic matter it's not an individualistic thing it is absolutely true that God has to deal with each one of us as individuals and there can be no way in which God can get a capacity for glory in a redeemed child of God but by working with them personally. He has to take our personal circumstances, our uh, personal situations, our personal problems and afflictions, and through these things he works in us a capacity for glory. We are being prepared for glory. We are moving from glory to glory as we keep our eyes on the Lord, being conformed to the same image. It is essentially, in that matter, a personal thing. You cannot hide in a company. You cannot hide in a community of believers. You cannot lose yourself in the church and say, well, I was there, therefore, because I am there and part of them and they're moving on with the Lord, I will of necessity know the glory of God. No, no, no. This is a personal matter. And everyone who opts out in responsibility uh, out of what God of the training of God, the education of God, opts out of the glory. You will not lose your salvation, but you can most certainly lose the glory. For only what there is of the Lord in you will be glorified. And that's what the writer to the Hebrews says when he says, don't draw back. Don't let an evil heart of unbelief take over. Don't let the deceitfulness of sin, and sin not always gross, but kind of sins that sometimes we don't, we don't recognize as sins, sins of bitterness, sins of faction, sins of just murmuring, sins of always, always kicking against the Lord, everything he does with us. Don't let the deceitfulness of sin harden your heart and thus bring a falling away. For the Lord Jesus Christ purposes to bring many sons unto glory. Many sons to glory. And that is a vessel of glory. 
It is not just that you and I are to know personal dealings with God, but there has to be a relationship with other believers in Christ. There has to be a knitting together, a fit, being fitly framed together, a growing up together into Christ as the head. We have to have our personal experience of the Lord, but we also have to have our relationship with other believers. That wife of the Lamb, that bride of Christ, that holy city, New Jerusalem, built out of those qualities of Christ's own nature and life that are described as pearl and gold and precious stone. Where does the gold and the precious stone and the pearl come from? It comes from Christ dwelling in us. It comes from his increasing and our decreasing. It comes through the problems we face together and go through together the way that we overcome the things that would divide us and distance us and are built together in the Lord. The glory of God. But then I want you to look at something else. If the God of all grace has called us to his manifested presence, look at the one who's bringing us there. Bringing many sons unto glory. In that wonderful chapter, Hebrews 2, it speaks of the Lord Jesus as the author of our salvation. The old version says, captain of our salvation. Mr. Sparks used to say in the old days, again and again, the file leader of our salvation. The one who is the pioneer, the one who has gone before, the one who's leading the way. He is the author of our salvation. The one who has gone before and carved out a way for us to go in. The author of our salvation. Oh, dear child of God, listen carefully to me. You will never come to the glory because of your own workings. You come to the glory because you have worked out your so great salvation. Get that clear? You have a so great salvation. If you just bury it, you will lose much. But if you exploit it, if you discover it, if you apprehend what is yours provided by God within it, you shall know what it is to be brought to glory. Everything you need is in that salvation. And the Lord Jesus Christ has provided through that salvation everything necessary for you and I to be brought to that glory of his. There is no excuse. The one who will finally stand before God with the greatest glory of all will be the one who most deeply exploited by the Spirit what was his or hers through the grace of God. No one will be there because they have natural character, because they have natural talents, because they have natural resources. Indeed, natural character can stop us. Natural talents can hinder us. Natural resources 
can paralyze us spiritually in that we depend upon ourselves and not the Lord. I'm not saying that we shouldn't have character, that we shouldn't have strong personality, but what I am saying is this, it takes the Lord some time to break us of our dependence upon ourselves when we have natural qualities. Thank God for them when they've been broken, and then the Lord can come through them in the most wonderful way. But it's all there in our salvation. No one will be there because he or she has somehow or other got a natural advantage over any other saint. Not at all. There is not a saint in this place today, not a believer, saved by the grace of God, to whom God has not made, has, to whom God has not given everything necessary for bringing you through your circumstances to his glory. Now you may say, ah, but you don't know my circumstances. Aha, but I do know the Lord. And he knows your circumstances. And he has made a provision of grace for your particular circumstances. Don't talk about your circumstances anymore. For if you have terrible circumstances, God has given abundant grace. If you have terrible problems, God has made a special provision for you in his salvation to bring you through to glory. Do you think that God is unjust? Do you think that God would just mock you and say, here is the standard? Now then, all of you, just start like that. Not at all. So that those who have natural strength and no great problems in their backgrounds or in their circumstances have got a flying start over the others. Never. If you have got problems, you have a special grace. For God will not be in any person's debt. When you stand before the Lord, the Lord will say, what you say, but you had this, and you had this, and you had this, and you had this, but I gave you this, and this, and this, especially for you, my child, for you. It wasn't to anyone else. I made an especial apportionment of grace and power and wisdom to you so that you could come through these problems and difficulties that I knew you had to glory. He is bringing many sons unto glory. He is the author of our salvation, the file leader of our salvation. He knows every single one of us personally, by name. He knows our circumstances, our situations, and he has made provision for us personally. Oh, that you and I could lay hold of this so great salvation. If we were only to discover the full extent of it, all that God has given us in it, we would start to find that the very problems are the means of propelling us toward the glory of God. Then we would begin to understand what the Apostle Paul says when he says, I glory in infirmities, in weaknesses, in necessities, in persecutions. We would begin to understand that he wasn't just exaggerating. He wasn't just having a lovely, sentimental, poetic flight of fancy. But the apostle had seen something that God had made in a special provision within his, the salvation that Jesus Christ had accomplished just for the problems that might come the apostle's way. And therefore, every single wind, every gale that came would only blow his ship toward the harbor by the grace of God. What another wonderful word is here in verse 11. For both he that sanctifieth and they that are sanctified are all of one. 
He is bringing many sons to glory. It's not as even as if our Lord is there and we are here. But God has made both he that sanctifies and they that are sanctified of one. That means that my glorious Lord's name is my name. And in that name there is not a door that will not open. In that name there is not a principality or power that will not bow. His name is my name. He has named his name upon me. He has told me to ask of the Father everything in his name. He has told us to gather in his name, to do all in his name. Isn't that wonderful? Both he that is that sanctifies and they that are sanctified are all of one. Then again, his position is my position. Think of that. He has ascended, seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. And we are told we've been made to sit with him in heavenly places. We're told that we reign upon the earth. We're kings and priests unto God. Both he that sanctifies and they that are sanctified are all of one. Why, this is absolutely wonderful. It means that in bringing many sons to glory, he's not only given us a salvation, he's made those that he's bringing to glory and himself one. And it is as we see his position that we overcome. They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of their testimony. That doesn't mean I was saved so many years ago. It means the word of their testimony is the Lord Jesus is my salvation. That's the testimony. The Lord Jesus is my life. The Lord Jesus is my victor. The Lord Jesus has won. That's a testimony. You overcome by the word of your testimony. You don't love your life to, even to death. Now I find that you see when you begin to see it like that it, it's really wonderful. And there's something more in this. Both he that sanctifies and they that are sanctified are all of one. For the way that our Lord went has got to be the way every one of his servants go as well. Did he know a Gethsemane? You shall know a Gethsemane. Did he know a Calvary? You shall know a Calvary. Did he know what it was to be buried? You shall know what it is to be buried. Did he know what it was to be raised from the dead? You shall know the glorious power of his resurrection. Did he know what it was to ascend on high? You shall know the power of his ascension. For here is the principle. If we're going to come to glory, we must go the same way he went. First it must be not my will but thine in everything. And sometimes it will cost us blood. We will never, ever come into anywhere near the sphere that our Lord Jesus was in when he said, nevertheless, Father, not as I will, but as thou wilt. But my dear friends, every believer has to face this sooner or later. Are you going to will the will of God or are you going to will your own will? And if you will your own will, you put yourself right outside of this education of the Spirit of God. You have turned back into that miserable state of civil war where it is all self. We all have to come to it. Every one of us has to come to the place where we either lay down our lives or not. We either hold on to them or we lay down them. We either hold on to our reputation or we let it go. We either hold on 
to our well-being or we sacrifice it. Every one of us. There is no way to glory. If we are not prepared to suffer with him, we shall not also be glorified with him. He that sanctifies and they that are sanctified are all of one. But here is something also very wonderful. He is faithful. Absolutely faithful. Once he finds a heart that's willing, once he finds a heart that's not prepared for all the cantant hypocrisy that we find not willingly but unwillingly amongst us believers, once he finds a heart that is honest with himself, he will be absolutely faithful in bringing that one through to glory. Never let go. Well then lastly, there is one other point here in this verse that I just want to underline and it's the word sons. Bringing many sons unto glory. What a wonderful word that is, sons. Not children. I know that you can take this matter too far in the distinction that the scripture makes between children and sons but there is a distinction you know a father may have children but only a son he may have many babes but only a son can take over the business now, I don't mean that in these days of sex discrimination that no daughters uh, can uh, take over a business. What I mean is this, that it's one thing to talk about, about babies, being babes, being children of God in that way. It's another thing to talk about a son. You can speak of a son, and he may have taken over a vast business empire. You no longer say, well, it's my child. That would be rather strange. You would say, my son, my son followed in his father's steps and taken over the whole business. He's grown up. And there's so much in the Word of God about growing up. The trouble with most of us is we remain babes. We remain children from beginning to end. We never grow up. But if the Lord's going to bring us to glory, we have to grow up as sons. We have to learn to take responsibility first in small ways. God will see to it in our homes, in our kitchens, in our businesses, in our work, in our personal life. The way we take responsibility about little things is the way God knows we'll take responsibility about big things. The way we conscientiously do small things is the way conscientiously, in the end, we'll do the larger things. If you are slovenly in some way or another in your your personal life, you will be slovenly in the end in big matters. If you are careless about certain things, later on you will be careless. A, a straw tells which way the wind is blowing. Growing up. God starts with small things. He found Gideon threshing wheat and said, O thou mighty man of valor, the Lord hath called thee. He found Moses keeping some scraggy sheep 
in the backside of the desert and called him, you shall go to Pharaoh for me. He found David, who'd slain a bear and a lion. Before ever he slew a Goliath. God trains us in order that we be no longer children, but sons. Growing up in stature. Growing up in responsibility. Coming to maturity. Being able to take responsibility in the things of the Father, in the work of the Father, in the kingdom of the Father. Bringing many sons to glory. It says of our Lord Jesus that he was perfected through suffering. Sometimes we think of that suffering only in terms of pain and anguish, but really it means through discipline, through those things which were limiting to him, those things that he found a discipline, those things that cut him back. Do you understand? He was perfected. Even our Lord Jesus, who was without sin, was made perfect, complete, brought to maturity through discipline, through suffering. And so it must be with you and I if we're going to be brought to the manifested presence of the Lord. God is faithful. It is the God of all grace who has called us. He will not fail. Our Lord Jesus Christ has laid down his life and provided a salvation so infinite that there is not a single need that is not provided for. He will not fail. Only you and I can fail. May God give us the grace not to rely upon ourselves but to lay hold of all that our Lord has provided for us and know it in experience, individually and together. And so know in the end that great joy of our Lord in having brought us to glory. Shall we pray? Father, we know thy word says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And we know ourselves, Lord, something of that. And Lord, thou hast saved us. And thou, who art full of grace, thou hast called us to thy eternal glory. O oh, Lord, we pray that none of us, having been so gloriously saved and provided for, shall still not come to that manifested presence of thine. We want to be, Lord, in that city. We want to be part of that bride. We want to be those joined together with thee, of whom thou hast said they shall sit down in my throne. O oh God, stir us up, that we may be those who not only discover what is ours, through our Lord Jesus Christ, but exploit it and know a glorious coming through, a growing up in everything into Christ. And we ask it in his precious name. Amen. May you be a home for God. May his glory be manifested in you. May you know 
the deep, deep love of Jesus.